StrongGunkJournal.com, and from listeners like you. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, Republic Radio for the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. It's a rainy day here. Radio Catskills becoming a rainy night. Rain overnight low down to 45. Steady rain continuing tomorrow through the morning. Showers into the afternoon, the high around 50. And now it's time for the local edition news and information that keeps you connected to the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. This is the first Tuesday of the month, and that's when we do the Kingfisher Project here on the local edition. And Bill Williams is in studio, ready to go. So let's get going here. Welcome to the Kingfisher Project, information and awareness about the heroin and opiate epidemic. I'm Julie Pazal. The Kingfisher Project began in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Jean Pazal, who was shot and killed due to her heroin addiction. At her memorial service, her former teacher, Mr. Okazalik, read an essay she wrote. It was about a bird, an injured Kingfisher bird that she found and rescued when everyone else had given up on the bird. In that spirit, our community came together and formed the Kingfisher Project. Since 2014, we have been raising awareness about the drug and opiate crisis in our listening area and around the country, right here on Radio Catskill. Here is Bill Williams. Thanks, Julie. My guest this evening is my friend Stephanie Campbell. After receiving her M.A. from Columbia University, an M.S. from University at Albany, and an M.S.W. from New York University, Stephanie joined Friends of Recovery New York in 2015 and worked at the state and the national levels to humanize, organize, and mobilize individuals impacted by addiction. Most important, probably, is that Stephanie is a person in long-term recovery. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you, Bill. It's such an honor and a privilege to be here. Um, I invited Stephanie to join me tonight because it's uh, this December 2nd, just a few days ago, marked the 10th anniversary of the death of my son, William, due to an accidental heroin overdose. Stephanie knows our story well. She's been a supporter and a comfort over the past decade. And I thought we might talk a little bit about our story with William, uh, where things have moved along in the last 10 years and where we still have to go. Any thoughts, Stephanie? Well, Bill, first I, I want to um, tell you and, um, and, and your wife, uh, who I've known um, for the last, uh, you know, decade, um, how, how close I hold you to my heart, as well as, um, you know, the, the thousands of other uh, individuals uh, who, and families who've um, suffered because of, um, you know, the overdose uh, pandemic. And um, it really is a pandemic, it's not just, unfortunately, here in New York State or even here in the nation, but um, uh, something that has touched folks around the world. And we know that, um, you know, the United States and 107,000 individuals to overdose deaths in the 12-month period ending in May of 2022. Um, New York State lost over 6,000 souls in that same period, and that leaves in its wake uh, grieving families and community um, whose hearts are broken um, irrecoverably uh, from from pain and heartbreak. And um, so I want to just acknowledge that this is um, 
you know, when we first started our conversations back um, 10 years ago, um, I remember, you know, the first numbers that were um, surging, uh, were, we were losing 29,000 people a day uh, from reported overdose deaths. And when we compare that to what's happening now, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's monumental that uh, as much as we've done in the wake of this uh, epidemic, um, so much more needs to be done. So I think that there's an opportunity um, for people uh, with lived experience um, in recovery uh, and family members who have been impacted by addiction uh, to really press upon a policymaker the need to, um, to address uh, overdose um, with um, with action, you know, we can't just talk about uh, these things. Um, these are these are real lives and 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 real people and communities that uh, are being impacted. Well, when you say that, the word action it reminds me of something I said when I delivered uh, uh, a eulogy at Williams Memorial Service, and the quote is small, attributed to Shakespeare. It says, "Action is eloquence." So we need to remember that doing things, taking action, can indeed be eloquent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that there's a real, where we have been incredibly successful um, as, a, as a community is when we build coalitions between advocates and, and stakeholders um, people who are providing services uh, to our community um, in collaboration with and in partnership with uh, government to really identify what's happening on the ground and to transfer that information into, um, you know, regulation and legislation and guidance uh, in terms of how those things are operationalized. And then, you know, to work with our federal partners, um, you know, who are doing an extraordinary work. I, I have to just put in a plug here for the incredible work that's being done um, on the federal level by, um, you know, those tasked by the Biden-Harris administration to address the overdose epidemic. And in the ways in which, you know, agencies are really harnessing and leveraging um, individuals with lived experience and working in collaboration with families um, and providers, um, as well as uh, insurance uh, companies, to to try to find ways to address um, you know the intersectionality of barriers that 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 hit people uh, when they're trying when they're at their most vulnerable and trying to find help. And I think that formula of creating um, true partnerships and, and building trust and, and that collaborative, um, you know, relationship is what has been so instrumental here in New York State and in, in other states across the country uh, in working with our federal partners to, uh, to address uh, this issue. Well, I was, I was talking about what, what you just said. I was talking about this with somebody the other day, and... Um the importance of educating people, the importance of making people aware uh, about the need to prevent drug abuse, 
to provide enlightened treatment for people who are using, to make treatment options for people more readily available, and certainly to remove the stain and shame of, of, of stigma. And I said all that, and my friend asked me, she said, she said, well, how do you do that? Thinking mainly, I think, of, of, of me, but how do you go about that? Um, and I, I said, well, we need to, we need to get people to understand the, the importance of compassion. And she said, well, how do you teach compassion? And my response was, was we tell our story. We continue to tell our story because that's the way people are going to understand. That's what makes it personal. And that's why, uh, that's why I refer to myself as a person in long-term advocacy. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> and, um, you know, and what makes you and, and Margot so powerful is exactly what you just said. You know, the willingness to, there's still so much stigma and discrimination that gets played out in so many areas of prevention, treatment, recovery, and harm reduction. Uh, and the payment of those services and supports. And when people have the courage to stand up and speak out and tell their stories, it humanizes what is often, you know, um, numbers and, and, and raw data for, for people who are on, you know, on the, on the bureaucratic side of, of, you know, making these decisions and in, in terms of crafting policy, it makes it real. And and one of the things I want to go back to what you said that was so, um, uh, such a great question of, you know, the how do we do this? Um, how do we teach compassion? What I often say to folks, um, you know, if I'm working on a case in which someone is being denied access to care and I'm hitting, you know, roadblocks uh, of people who are sitting at a desk and, you know, trying to push, uh, you know, uh, push the call maybe off on somebody else or uh, they don't know what to do and, um, and there isn't a sense of urgency. Um, what I will sometimes say to that person that I'm on the phone with is, what would you do if this was your family member? You know, what would you do if this was your loved one who was in crisis and you are now in crisis, and you are trying to get them the care that they need and deserve, um, what what steps would you take? And how can we apply that to solving this problem? And I'm curious how people respond to that. Well, it's interesting. Um, oftentimes people will, there'll be a, a, a visible shift in the conversation because what I've ask that person to do is to feel, right? Not think necessarily, but really get in their body and feel the urgency of, of the moment. And the fact that this person that I'm calling them about may die if they don't get the help that they need. And it, it, it becomes that much more real when that individual on the line who doesn't know me necessarily may have heard of my name or whatever, but, but they don't know me and they certainly don't know, you know, the person who I'm, I'm calling and advocating on behalf of. But when I bring it to them in terms of their immediate, you know, circle of, of connection, right? Because we often say, you know, the, the antidote to overdose isn't just naloxone. 
and and they won't perhaps die in that moment, hopefully. But the antidote to to you know overdose is getting people connected, getting them um, you know to to feel a human being worth um, you know helping, and that they deserve that care. And when we're talking to people who might not necessarily understand the urgency of the moment um, and may have a script in front of them, you know, that they're uh, trained to, to work off of, if we connect them to the reality that this person who, you know, I'm calling on behalf of is, is sick and suffering, and, and what would it be for them if this were their family member that breaks down some of the, you know, depersonalized in, um, communication that sometimes goes on between people, and it makes it more real. And that exactly goes to the efficacy of what you and, and your advocacy and, and um, you know, so many um, advocates around, you know, the state and country are doing in terms of trying to express to policymaker the need of, of some of these real you know, tangible recommendations that are being made by by sharing their story, by saying what happened and what went wrong and, and what would be, what would have helped their loved one in that moment. Um, the person on the other end of that, these, you know, not, not, you know, that family or that person uh, who's struggling with, you know, with a substance use disorder as, one of those people or, or others then, but really recognizes that person as a human being deserving of care. Yeah, well, our story, as, as, as you well know, our story was a, a young man who had finally made the decision to ask for help, asked for, uh, went to a hospital, asked to be admitted to inpatient detox, and within less than half an hour, he was denied by his insurance company and they said it was not. He told them he was injecting heroin. He was using uh, other drugs as well, and uh, benzos, alcohol, weed. And um, they said that he didn't need the detox. That it was not medically necessary. Now I hope we've advanced yeah. somewhere from that. We we certainly have, and here in in New York State, because of people like you. Um, Bill and, and so many advocates um, around around the state, you know, the fight for parity uh, in behavioral health, the fight, you know, for equal coverage and reimbursement by, by health insurers uh, of, of mental health and, and substance use conditions, you know, that's, that's long been challenging uh, for, for years. And certainly... You know, it was the grassroots movement back in the 1990s that really started to become vocal in, in their support of parity. And so, you know, that group of advocates hosted uh, spirited rallies around the country uh, where um, government leaders, advocates, individuals and families came to share ideas and experiences and garnish support for parity in legislation and policies affecting uh, behavioral health benefits. And we've come a long way uh, since then. You know, um, here in New York State, um, you know, sadly, uh, a young man, uh, not even a young man, a, a boy uh, named Timothy Eau Claire from Schenectady took his own life 
And similar to what you had experienced, the family's health insurance plan had provided only limited mental health coverage. And as a result, uh, that young man did not receive the care and treatment he needed. And so there was significant advocacy uh, that uh, that was done by Timothy's Law Coalition, which was, um, you know, a group of advocates who were pushing for um, a law named after this this young boy's, um, you know, name. And that was introduced to the legislature, and it became uh, the focus of the parody movement here in New York State. And we've done a lot of changes to um, to laws here in, in, in New York State, um, you know, uh, since unfortunately your son and so many, uh, other, uh, New Yorkers lost their children as a, as a consequence of, of, of a lack of parity, um, including, you know, not requiring, um, you know, prior authorization, uh, for individuals who were in need of, of treatment, um, you know, having, um, you know, the a limited number of, of days um, taken off of the table so that someone didn't have to either fail first or be restricted uh, to the number of days that they could get, that they ha- that that, you know, the insurance companies and uh, providers um, had to use a tool called the locator, um, which is um, a tool that was designed in collaboration between a number of different stakeholders to determine you know, medical necessity criteria, um, and that, you know, folks uh, who needed to uh, get access to care could do so quickly. And then on the federal level, um, in, in 2008, Congress passed the Federal Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, uh, also known as the PIA, and I believe you were um, involved in some of those conversations as well. And, you know, what MAPIA uh, attempted to do was to, um, uh, to prohibit health plans um, through regulation um, from, you know, offering mental health or substance use disorder um, benefits different uh, or imposing upon uh, those um, behavioral health benefits um, any financial requirement or treatment limitation that is more restrictive than the financial requirement and treatment limitations imposed on medical surgical benefits under the same plan. And so, um, you know, under MAPIA, um, there are two types of treatment limitations. Um, and I, I'm going to get a little technical here, so I, I, I beg the apology of our audience for, um, uh, for some of this uh, technical language. But, but those two types of treatment limitations are known as the quantitative Treatment limitations, which impose limits on the number of inpatient days that I just mentioned or outpatient visits. And then what's also known as non-quantitative treatment limitations, um, known as NQTLs. And those include all other types of limits on the scope or duration of of treatment. Some examples of NQTLs are um, utilization review, those fail-first policies, where you would have to fail first at outpatient in order to get into inpatient. Um, and also some, um, you know, rate calculation methods on, on reimbursement. But the, the trouble with the federal law currently as it stands is that it only applies to large employers with more than 50 employees. So, for example, a small employer with 50 employees or less would not be covered by uh, the federal parity laws. 
Um, but here in New York State, um, are covered by, by Timothy Law, Timothy's Law. So there's a number of changes that are currently, um, uh, being implemented by, by New York State. Um, um, you know, New York State has been looking very closely at, uh, both QTLs and, and non-QTLs. Um, and also issuing fines to plans who violate, uh, both New York State law, um, uh, insurance law. And those are, you know, um, and, and then there's also reviews of, you know, the, um, uh, the external appeals that, uh, folks, uh, file if they feel that they're, um, you know, that a, a negative determination on, uh, on a claim uh, has been, um, you know, is in violation of of um, of MAPIA or New York State law. So, I'm hopeful that um, you know some of these changes that are currently uh, in place, and and there's more to come. Um, that that parity implementation will, in fact, um, be uh, you know uh, much more um, helpful to to individuals and families who are trying to. Um, to get their loved ones uh, the care that they need, um, but but the struggle for parity is, uh, is is still not over. Certainly not. Um, if 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 my son, if William walked into a hospital today, would he been would he be more likely to receive treatment than he was ten years ago? I do believe that there has been some progress made in terms of you know, the way in which people who come in either having been uh, reversed from an overdose or in need of medication, there's a much more, um, there's, there's a willingness for, um, for hospitals to, um, to recognize that, um, you know, these individuals who are, are struggling and have a medical condition need to be treated. There's still, because of the nature of emergency rooms, um, there's still a real difficulty in getting, you know, folks the um, the care that they need with the immediacy and urgency that they need it. And there's a lot of discussion that's happening uh, in terms of, you know, the Department of Health and, um, you know, a number of other agencies in recognizing certainly uh, COVID through a monkey wrench into a lot of the um, progress that was being made in some of these discussions, um, because once again we see played out, you know, in uh, in the public health arena, uh, the way in which the disparity and discrimination against, um, you know, behavioral health versus um, medical, surgical, physical health is treated. When COVID became the focus. Understandably so, and, and you and I have talked about this, um, you know, we certainly had to address this global pandemic and, and the implications that that had on public health. Unfortunately, the collateral consequences of the shutdown, of the restricted access to, um, to treatment because of COVID outbreaks and because of trying to contain um, the virus in a way that, you know, our, our population is, is particularly vulnerable to that, that the cons, the collateral consequences of that is that there were, 
um, you know, increases in need for um, greater access to, to care, both on the mental health side and the substance use side. So we're really trying to, um, to work with our state partners and to identify, you know, sentinel issues, you know, these systemic problems that are still, um, you know, creating these barriers for folks to get access to care. And, and I, I do believe that if we bring it back to, you know, the value of lived experience, that where, you know, there are advocates like you and, and hundreds of advocates across the state who are willing to engage in meaningful dialogue, with state regulators and policymakers by sharing their stories, um, by, you know, making recommendations based on, you know, their experience, but also the science of addiction uh, and, um, and really embedding recovery and harm reduction across the entire continuum. I think that's where we're going to see um, sustained change. Um, it seems to me that one, I don't want to say one constant is the word I'm after, um, that we all run into all the time is is stigma, and it's I think partly my thoughts, but that stigma is really uh, something that is so primitive. It, it's the fear of the unknown. Um, for centuries, indeed, much of human history, we've attempted to name the unknown, the other, the the thing which terrifies us. We we try to describe it in some way. Um, I'm just there's an old prayer from the British Isles that goes. From ghoulies and ghosties and long-leggedy beasties and things that go bump in the night, good Lord, deliver us. And uh, it seems that our, in terms of uh, addiction, that our view is that primitive. It's it's like we don't know quite what it is and it scares us in the middle of the night, but good Lord, deliver us. Yeah, that's a powerful poem. And I think to your point about stigma, there is centuries of baked-in stigma around behavioral health and people who have been othered because of, you know, having conditions which are beyond their control to manage and the system which is set up, you know, to, to give people access based on whether they're deserving, deemed deserving, or undeserving. And so often substance use has been tied to um, you know, negative public perceptions of people who, um, and I put this in quotation marks, you know, make the moral choice to use even though they know that there's going to be negative consequences because of their use. And I often say to people, you know, the stigma around substance use and, and mental health um, is so contrary to what we know about health. Right. If we were to apply that, um, you know, that to people who, for example, you know, develop diabetes because, um, you know, uh, they um, they eat, you know, foods that um, are, you know, um, that, that that could create uh, an imbalance in their bodies and result in this chronic condition. Um, we don't blame those people. We don't deny them access to care. We don't other them. Uh, we we believe as a society that they're deserving of care. Similarly, we you know we can't blame people for using drugs or alcohol to help relieve their pain when you know uh, when those conditions 
are based upon uh, a need uh, and, and a medical condition to, to address, you know, their, their pain and suffering. So we have to be able to view. We can't separate the mind and body as we have. And I do believe that the, the way in which medicine and public health is moving, the direction it's moving in, is to really start to integrate the mind and body and to treat on par physical um, conditions on par with, uh, with mental health. And that's, you know, that's what I'm fighting for. That's, I know, what people like you are fighting for. And, and so many of our partners in, um, you know, and, and other areas, even, even, you know, some of the health plans, I've had conversations with those folks in which they recognize the value of, of, of treating their members um, in that capacity. Um, I, I believe that we're moving in the right direction. We need, though, to call upon, to press upon our leaders, um, you know, the urgency of addressing this as a public health crisis, not as a criminal justice issue or a moral issue. I'm afraid we have to end there, but thank you so much, Stephanie. We appreciate having you again. And you'll come back again, again, and again, I hope. I would, I would love to. Thank you so much, Bill, for all that you do. Thank Likewise. You allowing me to be here. You've been listening to The Kingfisher Project here on Radio Catskills Local Edition. News and information to keep you connected. The Kingfisher Project is information against addiction. Stay tuned. Music Emporium is coming right up. Still there, Steph? Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. From... Rourke Law, Liberty, New York, a general law practice serving the Catskills and Delaware River Valley, with an emphasis on estate planning, estate administration, 